Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Max Blumenthal, author of The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. Published by Verso in April 2019, and in paperback this coming July. Max Blumenthal is an American journalist, author, blogger, and filmmaker. He was awarded the 2014 Lannan Foundation Cultural Freedom Notable Book Award for his book Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel, published in 2013. Blumenthal has written for the New York Times, The Nation, and Al Jazeera English, among other publications, and was a fellow of the Nation Institute. Blumenthal established The Gray Zone in December 2015 and continues to edit and write for the website. It is my pleasure to have Max Blumenthal here. Welcome, Max. Good to be on. Yeah, great. Congratulations on the success of the book so far. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, yeah. No thanks to any of the initial publications you read off uh, where you know many of the arguments I put into the book have resulted in my blacklisting. Yeah, I understand it. It's been a real struggle, uh, to say the least, because there was an active campaign against you in the book. Can you go into that a little bit for us? Well, the campaign against the book was um, carried out by many of the people who appear on the pages, particularly people and organizations that have been involved in attempting to stimulate regime change in Syria or stimulate support for regime change in Syria among the American public. Uh, These are people who are tied in with uh, you know, NATO and the U.S. and British military intelligence apparatus, as well as this Syrian exile community in the U.S., uh, which functions much like the Cuban exile community or the Venezuelan exile community as a sort of arm of U.S. power against their former country um, to sort of put it back under, put it into the U.S. sphere of influence through regime change various forms of warfare and they basically oh, really? would you say that uh they are uh in like comparable in in strength and and are they concentrated in any place like you know like miami with the cuban exiles yeah the syrian exile community is concentrated in chicago and it really okay. started to uh move to the u.s after the confrontation between the government of Hafez al-Assad and the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood in 1982 in Hama, which was the base of the Brotherhood's strength at the time. Um, so they have that s- same similar history. And uh, what they attempted to do was to bombard any venue that would uh, 
host me about my book with phone calls, threats, um, complaints about me as a supposed genocide denier, um, and to frighten my hosts into submission. Um, it didn't really work. It led to the major bookstore in Washington, D.C., where you know any major author has their debut appearance for a book tour, Politics and Prose, uh, sort of suspending my talk where I've launched my three previous books. And then I had to do the event at an alternative venue, but Politics and Prose did wind up participating in the spirit of free speech and realized that they were actually facing a kind of um, censorship campaign that was antithetical to the values, the kind of liberal values that they claim to uphold. But it wasn't before they were first really intimidated and started asking questions about me as if I was some kind of Holocaust denier because I was presenting a view of the Syrian proxy war um, which the U.S. contributed billions of dollars to, uh, I was presenting a view that was completely at odds with what almost all Americans were fed for eight years straight by not just their mainstream media, but progressive media as well. Uh, the controversy around the book that was ginned up by this echo chamber, which has really been at the heart of the propaganda campaign pushing regime change, resulted in the book gaining attention, not just notoriety, but attention and lots of sales from people who wanted to know what was so dangerous about it. And I was, you know, also deluged by letters and messages on social media from people who said that they found the book extremely enlightening, illuminating, um, even exciting. And it helped them understand the situation they were facing in the West where sort of right-wing populist forces are on the rise. And, uh, you know, I think it's been very revealing. I think the most revealing episode in this whole saga of my book tour was when a uh, very well-known British pundit who's on lots of debate programs in mainstream British media, who comes from the left, supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, named Grace Blakely, just spontaneously stated on Twitter that my book was the best book of the year of 2019. And it was a devastating survey of French, US and UK imperialism. And she came under harsh attack from the same elements that have been, you know, hounding me all this time. And she just said, uh, she denounced me after saying that this was the best book ever. She denounced me, <laughs> deleted her tweet, and just shrank away. And it's like, okay, it was the best book ever until you realized that opportunity was at stake, that your career was at stake. And that just said everything to me about how yeah, yeah. it managed how, in the West. How, how did you, in, in what terms did she denounce you after, endorse, after so uh, heartily endorsing you? She said, well, I didn't know Max Blumenthal was an Assadist. <laughs> that, I'm a, that I'm a supporter of uh, the Syrian Ba'ath Party, according to her. I, I mean, okay. and this is sort of what she was told to say in order to kind of, and then she blocked yeah. me. Um, but it really illustrates how, you know, we supposedly live in a democracy, but our speech is so tightly managed that the kind of people that could have gotten this book into the, you know, in, into the spotlight and really forced a debate on these issues. Um, were forced to choose between their careers and the truth, and they chose their careers. 
Yeah, that that's that's quite amazing because um, I mean, on the new books network here, a lot of the books are really um, academic focused mainly. But um, I mean, your book, you name names. I mean, and and it's it's live. And in fact, I mean, what you're saying here is that um, you know, the very publication of your book, in a sense, illustrates your thesis, doesn't it? Yep. I mean, uh, the, the the reaction to it. Quite amazing. Um, yep. And yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's part of the information war that you describe in your book. So the, the right. uh, you know, Lydia Wilson and the the Times uh, Literary Supplement and and so forth. I, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the the, the thesis of the book is that um, the the West, but particularly in the United States, has since the you know Cold War. Uh, weaponized uh, Wahhabi ideology and you know um, jihadist, high um, militarized organizations against its geopolitical foes, starting with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, uh, but then you know more recently in Libya and then Syria, um, and you know through the invasion of Iraq also helped kind of uh, bring. Al Qaeda back from doom, um, as well as Afghanistan, and in doing so, by destabilizing these countries, they've created refugee crises, which have not only you know worsened the lives of people across Central Asia and the Middle East and forced them from their homes, but put right wing extremism in the West on hyperdrive, and right. that's sort of why I say that the national security state which was actually putting arms into the hands of groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda, not only helped create groups like ISIS, but also Donald Trump. Um, This was... Just um, before we go on, in case there are still people who are listening that don't understand what Wahhabi ideology means, can you just briefly explain it? What sort of the official state theology of Saudi Arabia, um, and it's it's a Sunni extremist ideology. I don't even consider it really a religious theology or a true Islamic current um, that sees um, the adherence of other sects within Islam, like Shia people, as takfiri. And that means that they can be basically eliminated. They've rejected the true Islam. Um, yeah. And it's what accounts for so much of the violence that we've seen against uh, Shia people in Iraq, for example, but also the slaughter of religious minorities in Syria and areas that the those identified by the U.S. as moderate rebels had taken over. So, and, and you know, it's a multi-billion dollar project of the Saudi state. It's part of their soft power um, and it sweeps it across Central Asia and all the way into Southeast Asia. And you're and, saying that the left in the United States has been weaponizing this Wahhabi ideology. No, no. The national security state the has weaponized it. State. In the Cold War, this was a perfect way to peel people in Muslim-majority countries away from socialism and communism, was to divert them to this right-wing reactionary ideology. And so the CIA was actually working with various groups within the you know Wahhabi sphere uh, to to implement this project, and particularly in Afghanistan. So, I don't this 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 thesis, which really is like 
anti-imperialism 101. It's like, this is mm-hmm. how you understand how the empire functions. Uh, was very threatening to interests in Washington for two reasons. One, because as you mentioned, I named names. And, yeah. I, and number two, I am a fairly prominent journalist. I have a large platform. And those who had really taken on the the the, the Syria regime change propaganda complex before me had come from more marginal backgrounds who were more easily demonized. And so I was a much bigger target. I was a bigger threat. And the one, so you mentioned this review of my book by mm-hmm. Lydia Wilson, um, someone I'd never heard of before in the Times Literary Supplement, which is, yeah. you know, sort of a centrist, uh, re, you know, review organ. Um, that used to be affiliated with the Times of London and is now sort of independent. It was the only real. It was the only mainstream review of my book, I think, and it wasn't uh-huh. really a review of the book. It was an attempt at a, an attempted takedown of me personally. Uh, it's the and even the publishers, the, Verso. I mean, yeah. you know, at the end, yeah, everything, everybody. It was like amazing, yeah. Yeah, the author was, you know, at the end denouncing Verso for publishing the book. Uh, she also denounced Verso for publishing um, my previous book, The 51 Day War, which is just mm-hmm. uh, an account of Israel's war on Gaza in 2014. And, uh, you know, she was attacking my Twitter account. You know, there was a rev- she basically spent one eighth of the piece reviewing my Twitter account. It was ridiculous. <laughs> she accused me of factual errors, which were not errors. They were facts. And in the course of doing so, made many factual errors of her own. She was defending all of these fake experts who were funded by the Gulf states to propagandize not just the US public, but people in government about the true nature of the Syrian armed opposition. And I looked into who Lydia Wilson was, and it turned out she was a sort of a researcher a counter-terror researcher whose career had been funded by the Pentagon, by the U.S. Department of Defense. But she was identified simply as you know, a Middle East expert in the review. And I thought this omission says it all about the nature of the opposition to my book, that so many of these people are closely affiliated with, supported by, or members of the very national security state that I rake over the coals in the management of savagery. So as you said, I mean, you put it perfectly, the publication of this book illustrates its thesis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's it's quite um, uh, another context because I, I mean, I know, you know, since it's been out in hardcover for a year already, you've spoken about it a lot, and, and I don't want to bore you with having to repeat it all the time. But uh, so, I mean, I know in other um, interviews you've given, you've spoken about how um, you know the, the another context in which y- your book can be placed is the whole. Uh, explanation of the rise of Trump and that, you know, and the whole Russia, Russia, Russia thing. And you are basically saying that, you know, the, the very people, this resistance to Trump, uh, the people who are, who are who are promoting this Russiagate um, conspiracy theory uh, are, in fact, uh, the, the people who are responsible for Trump. You know, yeah. and and just like how neoliberalism produced Trump, it wasn't Russia or Putin, and uh, so now you're, in a sense you're saying neoconservatism uh, produced Trump. Do you want to expand on that, please? Yeah, you could even argue they produced Putin in so many ways, or set the stage for his rise. Uh, but you know, just uh, mm-hmm, because right. because we can't talk for the next, I could talk for the next two hours about it, but 
just to make it more condensed, yeah. uh, let's focus on one figure who's been really at the center of the anti-Trump resistance, who I think has a uh, contributorship now at CNN, John Brennan, former right. CIA director, uh, called Trump a traitor after he mm-hmm. held a summit with Vladimir Putin where they were going to discuss uh, new treaties to limit um, intercontinental ballistic missiles, something that I think is was good for humanity. And, of know, course. Remember the summit where Putin handed uh, Trump a soccer ball and then CNN promptly produced an article about how that soccer ball could have contained a surveillance device. <laughs> um, yeah. But John Brennan called Trump a traitor on national TV after that uh, event. And, you know, as much as I really revile Trump, uh, treason can, carries the death penalty in the United States. And that was really a, a repulsive statement. Uh, it, Brennan was unable to defend it. John Brennan was in charge for, for several years of the Syrian proxy war. And part of his disgust with Donald Trump stems from the fact that in 2016, Trump campaigned on rolling back the proxy war while Hillary Clinton was calling for a no-fly zone over Syria, which would have meant a direct confrontation with Russian troops and Iranian troops who are active in Syria, as well as uh, the same kind of regime change catastrophe that we saw in Libya when NATO implemented a no-fly zone there. Donald Trump was saying, we don't know who the rebels are. We don't know who these people are. Why are we giving them weapons? Why are we there? You know, essentially an anti-interventionist campaign. He was talking about rolling back John Brennan's baby, a multi-billion dollar arm and equip operation where heavy weapons, anti-tank weapons were being put in the hands of affiliates of Al-Qaeda and various other extremist organizations who are just running rampant through Syria and creating a massive refugee crisis. Uh, John Brennan loved that big operation. All CIA directors, they love these big semi-covert operations. It gives them and their people something to do, and they send in tons of field operatives. It's, so Brennan can, thought you know Trump is handing Syria over to Russia. Brennan uh, was responsible at the same time for what took place in Syria, where we've seen the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And I think there is absolutely no doubt that if the US hadn't embarked on Operation Timber Sycamore, which was really first conceived under David Petraeus as CIA director, but carried through under Brennan, uh, we wouldn't have seen the refugee crisis. We wouldn't have seen large areas of Syria uh, fall to the Islamic State And now Idlib is under the control of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is a rebranding of al-Qaeda's local affiliate, Jabhat al-Nusra. We wouldn't have seen that take place. It wouldn't have been possible for them to take over cities, parts of cities like East Aleppo. And we wouldn't have seen Syrian people leave because they were fleeing in terror. Um, And I illustrate in my book how you know, there were many refugees who said they were fleeing from the government, but pretty much just as many who said they were fleeing from the rebels. And having been to Damascus last year, I met so many internally displaced refugees who had fled there from the so-called rebels. So that's John Brennan's legacy. And yeah. so what else is John Brennan's legacy? What did Donald Trump campaign on besides rolling back the Syrian proxy war? He also campaigned on Islamophobia, the hatred and fear of Muslims. And I illustrate in my book how Islamophobia is sort of the, uh, is blowback 
from the U.S. putting international jihadism on hyperdrive and perverting uh, the image of Islam in the Western mind, as well as the fact that you had a million Syrians marching on the Balkan Trail towards Western Europe, uh, seeking some place to go after being forced from their homes because of this gigantic proxy war. Uh, what is the result of that in Europe politically? The result is a bonanza for the right wing. The result in the U.S. is Trump promising on the campaign trail a Muslim ban, particularly to ban Syrians. And every Republican governor in the United States followed suit and said, we will not accept any Syrian refugees. Thank you, John Brennan. And, yeah. and, and, and finally, you know, with the Russiagate hysteria, I mean, we can get into that later, but it was, if were it not for Russian intervention in Syria, the state would have been overrun as Libya was, and there would have the refugee crisis would have been ten times worse. Now, the country is gradually becoming stabilized, even though it's much more poor than it was before and is under sanctions. And John Brennan hates to see that. Yeah, you know, th- this is um, I mean, part so much um, swirling I, within. Your narrative, and then um, around the publication of the book itself is, is this sort of information war. You know who who to trust. You know who 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 are the good guys, who are the bad guys. Um, you know should, who should we believe, and and who is you know who we should be rooting for, and and, and all this sort of stuff. And 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 so many people who don't have the time to look into it, or inclination, or or whatever are. Are really just confused about everything, uh, you know. So you you have these figures like let's say Rachel Maddow, right? Who um, I, I I'm not sure uh, how much um, you know she was sort of uh, cheerleading for the Syria, um, you know, the the Syrian intervention, but certainly the anti-Russian hysteria is. I mean, she's just sort of really you know over the top with it but how i mean she's obviously an intelligent person um how how do you explain and i'm sure many listeners on the nbn are, are huge fans of of rachel maddow and and whatnot um how, how do you explain uh someone like rachel maddow is, is she genuinely um uh, you know, deceived or, or, or misinformed or, or, or what is it? How, how do you um, understand that? Well, you know, I don't think Rachel Maddow is as deceived as her viewers and mm-hmm. fans um, and yeah. as, the, you know, the Democratic Party base has been um, who just don't have the same resources at their disposal and are easy prey for mm-hmm. this kind of psychological attack uh, Rachel Maddow is being paid millions and millions of dollars to disseminate this propaganda. She's being rewarded for it. Uh, yeah. And what she did, which I thought was kind of clever in a completely cynical way, is she led her viewers along uh, with a constant narrative night after night that followed this Russia saga, which was being pushed by a confluence of two elements, the national security state, the intel, you know, the sort of the, what Donald Trump would call the deep state and the Democratic Party establishment, the Hillary Clinton dead enders, the partisan Democrats. 
And she kept them on a string. So every night they're wondering what's going to happen next in this Russian saga, because Donald Trump definitely colluded in their minds with Russia in order to throw, in order to steal the election from Queen Hillary. And at the end of it, he's going to be prosecuted. They're going to get him and justice will prevail. And she was misinforming them using um, black propaganda like the Steele dossier, which had been paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign through a friendly law firm and which was produced by a former British MI6 agent who was not completely uh, above bar about what his methods were, whether he was paying sources, whether anything in it was actually true. That was really the basis for Rachel Maddow's narrative. And the Steele dossier turned out to be simply a collection of distortions of half-truths and outright lies. Um, She was, you know, also just spinning out conspiracy theories, uh, warning her viewers that Russia would um, actually hack our um, national electricity grid to mm-hmm. make sure that people would die in North Dakota in the winter, um, spreading fear, the kind of fear that she denounced when she was a you know much lesser known radio host on a progressive network during the run up to the Iraq War, and she it was incentivized with millions of dollars, with ratings like she'd never seen before, with national fame, and at the end of it all, she should have been discredited if we lived in a sort of decent media environment. She should have yeah. been fired, but instead, you know, with coronavirus sweeping through the country, Rachel Maddow is now night after night speaking out against misinformation. <laughs> um, and that's sort of the, the the tragedy of American media is that people who didn't receive any incentive for watching this and following along this narrative have been misinformed by institutions that they trusted, not just Maddow, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, and National Public Radio. And what they weren't informed about was the real crisis brewing, which was that a pandemic could come and Donald Trump spent weeks and weeks lying about it. Uh, but you know, the, 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 the liberal media, MSNBC, they, were, they had spent the past three years creating a crisis, manufacturing a crisis that they benefited from instead of actually preparing the public for a real one. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, um, it, it, it's quite amazing. I mean, um, let's see, there, there are a couple of angles I, I want to take off here. Well, f- for one, the way the, this idea of these people who are sort of promoting themselves as the resistance and, and the true patriots, as, you know, in your book, you name names. You you have like historical villains. I mean, you, you have major villains and minor villains, I suppose, throughout your whole book. Who who would you? And and many of these people who are like John Brennan, who you know you know are proclaiming Trump to be a traitor, and so so you know he's really defending the American way. And you have this insane scenario where the left now are defending the intelligence agencies and the FBI and the CIA. You know, the left are, are, are their huge champions now, and, and the right uh, are skeptical of them. That's just an amazing turnaround in my lifetime that I've seen. But um, you, you go through the whole history uh, f- from the 70s, from the Afghanistan period, of, of the major actors in this and who are still around today and who are sort of called patriots, but certainly from your uh, narration of their history, 
you know, they, they don't deserve that term at all. Who who would you say are some of the the main people? I don't know, Mueller, Brzezinski, Brennan. Who who, who would you um, name as as the main people we should really understand their sordid history about? Well, the book really begins with Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, the head of his kitchen cabinet of uh, national security aides. And it was Zbigniew Brzezinski who convinced Carter to initiate uh, Operation Cyclone to to date. You know, by that point in 1979, it was the largest. What Operation Cyclone took place under Ronald Reagan, but the the first phase of it began under Carter, and Brzezinski basically confessed later on in an interview with the French magazine Nouvelle Observateur that the reason that he implemented this program or convinced Carter to do it to fund the Afghan mujahideen billions of dollars to provide them with weaponry and training, which really laid the basis for the foundation of Al Qaeda. Um, because the Saudis produced a matching fund and began sending in foreign fighters and sort of foreign managers like Osama bin Laden. Um, The whole point of it was to drag the Red Army into a conflict it could not win in Afghanistan, uh, to produce a Vietnam for the Soviet Union and to wound the Soviet Union at its soft underbelly at a time when it was sort of entering a terminal phase. And Brzezinski sought to really claim credit in you know toward, towards the end of his life and the end of his career in interviews he wanted to claim credit for helping collapse the Soviet Union this is someone who comes from Poland who comes from an aristocratic family his parents owned land in Galicia he hated the Soviet Union more than anything and through his uh, presence in the United States and his influence he was able to carry out this goal. And then when he was asked by a filmmaker, um, Samira Gochel, what about the rise of the Taliban? What about the rise of Al Qaeda? Um, You know, what about the blowback from what you've done? He said, who cares about them? They mean nothing compared to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was so great for humanity. So, you know, the, the sheer cynicism of Brzezinski is on, has been on full display and he's been open about it. And I think, you know, all of the consequences and ramifications of this phony war on terror, the way that it um, enhanced the national security bureaucracy in the U.S. to a point where we can no longer really call ourselves a democracy, the surveillance state we live in, all of the ramifications flow from those decisions made by Brzezinski. And I think, you know, he is really a premier villain in this book, but there are so many others. Um, you know, I think another one would be John McCain. Right. Um, and you know, John McCain is someone who actually came to, began to come to prominence rallying the public as a freshman congressman in Arizona in support of the Afghan proxy war. Um, my, in an early chapter, I recount, uh, the experience of a friend of mine, Helena Cobbin, who is a veteran journalist, who was invited to an academic conference at, um, I think, Arizona State University or somewhere around Phoenix. 
she comes, she thought it was going to be a conference on Afghanistan. And it turns out to be what she called an adopt a Muj conference where wealthy Republican women who are, you know, hardline anti-communists have gathered and representatives of the Mujahideen are in this amphitheater and they're together there to listen to John McCain, the keynote speaker on how the U.S. needs to show resolve by supporting these freedom fighters who embody the spirit of our founding fathers, the Minutemen in Afghanistan. And every woman had adopted a Muj. They were sitting next to them and they agreed to sponsor them or their battalions as fighters. And so McCain, you know, if you follow his career from there, every time the U.S., embarks on a regime change operation, McCain would fly to the front lines to rally support. He flew into Benghazi to meet with Abdel Hakim Belhaj in 2011 to rally support, NATO support, for his Libyan Islamic fighting group. Who was Abdel Hakim Belhaj? He was someone who, first of all, got his battlefield experience in Afghanistan through the CIA-backed proxy war and who went on to found the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group as the Libyan affiliate of Al-Qaeda. And so here's John McCain in a meeting with Abdul Hakim Belhaj, an Al-Qaeda affiliate. And and what McCain actually said, he is not Al-Qaeda and we need to send them money. Who else was in the meeting? Ambassador Christopher Steele. Uh, Ambassador Christopher Steele. So depressing. This is the person who was killed uh, by Ansar al-Sharia, who had basically gotten weapons through groups like the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group after the U.S. toppled the Libyan government. And he was at the consulate in Benghazi to organize mm-hmm. the uh, shipment of the weapons pilfered from Libyan army depots, Libyan military depots following the fall of Gaddafi um, into the arms of the Syrian armed opposition, basically taking those weapons to launch a new regime change operation. And who shows up on the battlefield there? John McCain to meet with more extremist members of the armed opposition in Syria, to call them freedom fighters. Um, This was sort of a notorious trip that was mocked at the time by John McCain. John McCain's office was the base of operations for the Syrian regime change campaign, particularly in 2013, when the US nearly launched an attack on the Syrian government after another highly suspicious chemical attack. So McCain just constantly appears on the pages of my book, and he's someone who's he's really seen as a hero uh, in Washington among the establishment by members of both parties. Uh, one of the most prominent progressives in American political life right now, who is beloved by many, uh, you know, young supporters of Bernie Sanders. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez referred to McCain on his death as uh, a uniquely decent person. I think she said no one was more decent than John McCain. I mean, so this is the mythology that I try to puncture with my book. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and it's an amazing um, and important, you know, service you're you're providing in illustrating in great detail, naming names about the sort of bipartisan nature of of the warmongering that that's been going on. Yeah, and, and um, I I don't know if if uh, anyone has has really done this. Uh, maybe they have, but I, I'm not aware of it. I, and I'd like to know if 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 you'd be able to give your insights. Like you know, Brzezinski is like I guess the the Democrats' leading foreign policy 
you know, grand thinker. Uh, the Republicans have a few on their side, but Kissinger stands tall. And I mean, Hillary Clinton, you know, boasts that she, you know, studied at his feet or whatever. How how do you compare Brzezinski and Kissinger? Well, Kissinger commands sort of bipartisan appeal. And I think it's because partly because he'll outlive me. I mean, he's just lived forever. Yeah. He remains active. Um, and I think that Brzezinski embodies a much more ideological strain of U.S. foreign policy that carries through the kind of liberal internationalism that prevailed, what you would call, I would call liberal imperialism that prevailed in the Obama administration, uh, which flows from his experience uh, in Eastern Europe. I think Kissinger does come from a similar background and we saw ideology prevail in in Kissinger's dealings uh, with the Egyptians and Syrians in the 1970s, Camp David one and two, um, where you know even Hafez al-Assad had hoped that he would be welcomed by the United States and respected, and that the U.S. wouldn't constantly undermine him. But he wound up dealing with Kissinger, someone who had an ideological and personal attachment to Israel, and was basically double dealing. Uh, the negotiations basically became a confrontation between Kissinger, who managed to peel away Sadat from the fold of sort of Arab independence. Um, but at the same time, Kissinger is understood in Washington as more of a realist, uh, someone who just embraces the realistic needs of American empire. Uh, I, I really, I, I, I really have never thought about comparing the two of them, but I can compare the kind of two prevailing strains of, uh, I I, I don't know if I could call them conflicting strains of uh, thought that dominate the foreign policy establishment in Washington. And which uh, I think animate the forces around Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Trump has surrounded himself uh, uh, you know, he hasn't surrounded himself with anyone. He's been essentially rolled by uh, neoconservatives represented by like the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which runs Donald Trump's Iran policy, and hardline militarists like Mike Pompeo, who seems to have just eaten John Bolton. Like John Bolton lives in his stomach or something. Yeah. He's, uh, Mike Pompeo is an army officer from West Point who blends the kind of um, American exceptionalist view that uh, uh, prevails in the Christian right, which he also is a part of, with um, the real hardline elements within the military um, and the neoconservative strain as well. So they, you know, they see Iran through the lens of supporting Israel. They see uh, China through the lens of anti-communism. They see Russia through the lens of anti-communism. Everything is ideological with them. Mm -hmm. Then you have on the Biden side, an emerging group that calls themselves the 21st century Democrats. Um, And this is something I'm planning to write about uh, because they actually want to distinguish themselves from the liberal internationalists who they think failed in the Obama administration. Partly, they didn't do regime change in Syria. They 
did not take the Russian threat seriously enough. And the pivot to Asia, which began in the Obama administration, which sought to reposition U.S. forces from the Middle East, uh, which was seen as a quagmire to Asia and specifically um, the South China Sea, the beefing up of the Navy and Marines to do so, uh, was never fulfilled. And what the 21st century Democrats want to do is to embrace what is now the Trump national security doctrine of great power competition with China and Russia. Uh, under uh, General James Mattis, who um, is actually less extreme than Mike Pompeo, he's, he's not as completely ideological as the dominant forces around Trump right now. He introduced the Trump uh, defense doctrine in 2018 as what I described. And in the document that he presented, there were no mentions of ISIS at all. He uh, effectively declared an end to the so-called war on terror. Now we are in a new cold war with Russia and China. And in his view, and in the view of so many in Washington, Russia and China, and I think Kissinger would, would dispute this, Russia and China are one block, and we live in a bipolar world. It's the U.S. against Russia and China. And so what the 21st century Democrats want to do is have a full-scale confrontation with China, which presents the greatest threat to U.S. hegemony in the world. I mean, that's going to mean encircling China even further with our naval forces, with military bases, but also using... South Korea, Japan, and the Philippines as proxies. And that means undermining um, conciliatory leaders like Moon Jae-in in South Korea. It also means um, a, some, a sort of a transformation of the U.S. economy, or I would say a consolidation of the U.S. economy as a base for military production. And actually, a think tank in Washington, the Carnegie Endowment, which is connected to the Biden campaign through you know, the people carrying out this study, are looking at the Rust Belt economy, which has been devastated in the US. And they're looking at where it can be productive. And right now, they're finding in you know, places in Ohio that have been deindustrialized that the only jobs available are in the arms industry, in producing weapons. Mm -hmm. And what, what the Trump administration has done to counter China is, you know, tariffs, putting tariffs on $115 billion of Chinese goods, the trade war, which conflicts with the um, 21st century Democrats and the liberal internationalists who believe in free trade. And so instead of really embracing tariffs, what they want to do to sort of save the American steel industry, for example, is to keep the defense budget extremely high where Trump already has it to preserve jobs in middle America. Basically, the U.S. just becomes a military bastion for confronting China. And so you don't have that much space between the 21st century Democrats around Biden and the ideologues around Trump. The key difference there, I think, is in the Middle East, where the 21st century Democrats don't see any hope there. They'd like to return to the Iran deal, maybe un under more unfavorable conditions for Iran. They don't care about Israel-Palestine or the peace process anymore. They want to get the hell out of there um, and focus everything on China. Well, that that's really interesting. Um, and and I, I look forward to your um, investigation into that. It's, but, you know, um, your your book certainly is, you know, uh, disdainful of, of Trump and, and 
you know, that whole movement and the um, sort of uh, Islamophobic, anti-immigrant strain, and, and you show how it's connected um, to the to the national security state and produced by that whole um, strategy, starting with Afghanistan. Now, but um, which is so in in a sense, you're, you're indicting kind of um, both you know, liberals, I suppose, establishment liberals and, and the foreign policy um, liberal elite, I suppose, led by Zbigniew Brzezinski and, uh, and, and the, the Islamophobic right, which, which it produced as well. But who, who do you, do you see anyone as, um, as worse than the other? The, um, uh, it, it sounds like, um, uh, you know, really, the the real villains are are those. Um, you know, it started with the Carter administration. Really, how how do you um, see it? Well, let me introduce another villain, um, one that anyone who supports Donald Trump despises, and that's you know the FBI. James Comey is a major villain in my book. We're right. not we're not for the FBI to the extent that Donald Trump traded on anti-Muslim prejudice and fear, uh, Donald Trump would not be president. The FBI played a really important role in the manufacturing of Islamophobic attitudes in the US by creating fake terror plots again and again and again. What they would do is go into a mosque or Islamic communities, find mentally disturbed young men and entice them through through, their, through assets who often had criminal backgrounds themselves into phony controlled terror plots. And they'd say, we're going to give you some bombs. You just have to agree on a recorded call that you're going to go bomb this synagogue or you're going to go bomb this police station. Hundreds and hundreds of young Muslim men who had serious mental problems were arrested and sentenced to long terms. And in the media, it's ISIS plot broken up. That's how it's reported. That's how Americans understand it. They actually think that ISIS was plotting to blow up a synagogue or blow up a school. And they don't understand that there was actually never a bomb. There was no one with the capacity to set off a bomb. I write about how the FBI created a fake terror plot um, in Garland, Texas, where Pam Geller, one of the key architects of the sort of Islamophobic movement in the U.S., very prominent mm-hmm. right-wing blogger, was holding a Draw Muhammad cartoon contest at a church in Garland. And the FBI actually followed the uh, dupes who they had told to go, in their words, tear up Texas. They followed them to the site of this Draw Muhammad cartoon contest. And you know these two clowns who were mentally disturbed ex-convicts who had converted and been sort of brainwashed by Wahhabi theology, uh, got out of the car and started shooting. They were immediately cut down by armed guards with the FBI directly behind them. Pam Geller appears the next day as this gigantic free speech hero whose life is threatened. And it was the FBI that created that entire scenario to make this extremist who had said that, for example, Barack Obama was the bastard love child of Malcolm X on her blog, was a free speech hero. And we've seen that scenario play out again and again. The most disturbing um, scenario was, and, and this is, I think, one of the five to seven key factors in Donald Trump's election that are not acknowledged, um, was the Pulse nightclub massacre where mm-hmm. Omar Mateen, a uh, deeply disturbed young man 
of Afghan uh, descent. His father came over from Afghanistan after the proxy war wrecked his country. Uh, Shot up a LGBTQ nightclub in Orlando killed uh, like 60 or 70 people. They may have also been killed in the police raid uh, to get him out. It was said that Mateen was himself a closet homosexual and that he was trying to just kill gay people because, you know, he's an Islamic fundamentalist. But if you Mm -hmm. listen to the police call between him and the hostage negotiator, he's not talking about, he doesn't say anything about gay people. He's talking about ISIS. He's talking about Syria. He's saying this is revenge for what the U.S. did in Syria. He said, Omar Abu Abu Salha did his thing. I'm going to do mine. Who is Omar Abu Salha? He was the first American to die as a foreign fighter against the Syrian government in Syria. Um, So it was all about Syria and ISIS. Beyond that, I learned soon after the massacre that the FBI had attempted to coerce Omar Mateen while he was working as a security guard at a county court in Florida into one of these controlled phony terror plots. In other words, the FBI was monitoring him and they were trying to get Mateen to carry out a fake terror plot before he went and massacred people. I don't know what the consequence of that was, how it may have fueled his violent propensity. But then we learned that his father had been a longtime asset of the FBI. And his father, Sadiqi Mateen, uh, actually appeared in one of the most, I think, one of the strangest episodes of the 2016 political campaign at a Hillary Clinton rally in Florida. Mm -hmm. Sadiqi Mateen appeared behind Hillary Clinton. You know how they have all of the people assembled on stage behind the candidate? And he's standing there with a Hillary for America sign. And then he's giving interviews to local media about how Hillary is good for national security. Do we, I mean, are we stupid enough to believe that was a completely organic episode and it wasn't something that the FBI or forces connected to the Trump campaign could have orchestrated? I, yeah. I, I just don't believe it. But that was devastating for Hillary. And then Trump proceeded to go on national media and say, why is this guy in our country? I would deport him. I don't care if he's a citizen. Take his citizenship away. And it was riling up the base. Trump even had pro- uh, his own campaign proxies go down to the Pulse nightclub like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, this fascist hipster, to uh, agitate for the Muslim ban. So I, I see everything – that was taking place in the campaign uh, in light of the context that I lay out in my book and the narrative that I lay out in my book. Um, But particularly the role that the FBI played helped get Donald Trump in. And then once he was in, you had elements that opposed Donald Trump within the FBI actually take measures against him and stage what you could compare to a coup. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, put something uh, to you here. I'd like to hear your opinion on it because I mean, I, I originally uh, came, you know, very much strong from the left many decades ago. Um, and it, I, I had, I had the idea that, that the left was, you know, anti-war and um, that it was the sort of peace loving side and the right were all warmongers and, and so forth. And, and uh, over the years I've, 
I've discovered that that's not true, <laughs> and um, and I and I was surprised on both sides. I mean, I was surprised at how much warmongering ideology there is on the left, and also how much anti-war ideology there was on the right. I, I which I I wasn't aware of when I was a, a teenager and so forth, and um, and and I know your your book you know drives drives a narrative that that and. And I think it's it's uncontestable. I, I think you ha- you you make an excellent case for it that that it was driven by you know the national security state and you talk about the FBI and, and all these things. But on on the other hand, it uh, I I do think you know there the, you know whether it be Pat Buchanan and the Paleo Conservatives or the America First people or or the Isolationists or or or, or the people you know who are you know, the anti-Semitic lobby right and the anti Israel people who say, you know, Israel is driving um, uh, U.S. foreign policy and we're fighting all these foreign wars for Israel, um, that in a sense, it's almost like um, it's like the anti-war right was stronger in the end than the anti-war left. And, And that also is part of of Trump's victory. Do do you uh, what do you think of that? That's a very provocative question and you know I think to the extent that Trump has held his base it shows the weakness of the anti-war right um, and that they you know or the anti-war left you mean the weakness of the no the anti-war right because, oh right yes that's right because he's 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 betrayed them <laughs> yeah constantly I mean, that's right I mean it's the it's just a titanic betrayal uh, yeah. there weren't he they didn't even get crumbs like Obama gave the idiots who drove around with like Obama stickers with peace signs in 2008. He at least gave them yeah. the, the Iran deal or he didn't launch a full-scale military assault on Syria. Trump's just been completely rolled by the neoconservatives and the militarists like John Bolton. Mm-hmm. So the anti-war right uh, doesn't have a home. Um, they are still left with you know, a sort of backbencher members of Congress who follow in the tradition of Ron Paul. And yeah. uh, you know, to the extent that they're um, that they, they're not, you know, white nationalist extremists, you know, the elements around the American, American conservative magazine, um, mm-hmm. you know, I consider these people to be principled opponents of intervention. And, you know, I think there's, there, it's important to, to build coalitions with them. Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee, the Republican Senator from Utah introduced important legislations to limit us participation in the assault on Yemen, this U.S. Saudi assault on Yemen, so that you know, there's there there are all kinds of uh, areas for participation, but I can't really quantify or assess yeah. the strength of the anti-war right versus the mm-hmm. anti-war left in the United States. In Europe, it's pretty clear that uh, you know right-wing parties are bringing much more opposition to intervention in a place like Germany, for example, the alternative yeah. for Deutschland, who, you know, I, abso- I absolutely oppose their agenda. They are much more opposed to intervention than, than the Green Party in Germany. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's indisputable. In the US, mm-hmm. you have the Bernie Sanders campaign where Bernie Sanders himself doesn't understand how to be anti-intervention, but the people who support him in his the Bernie Sanders movement are absolutely opposed to pretty much any US military action abroad. Um so 
I think the issue in the United States really for the anti-war right or the anti-war left is democracy, that our foreign policy is not democratized and that it's very difficult for any of us to find a voice in Washington. Uh, The foreign policy establishment is completely cloistered and it's impossible Uh, as we've seen from the destruction of Bernie Sanders, it's really impossible on a national level to make it, make an impact. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed Ann Coulter on this podcast a couple of weeks about her, her, um, book resistance is futile and and she you know has her own um demolition of the whole russia gate thing which overlaps very much with yours because it's factually based you know these are facts whether you're on the right or left these are facts and um but and one of the things she, she talked about um she was going on about the similarities between Bernie and Trump. And she was saying in 2016, after Bernie um, dropped out, she she spent you know so much of her time in New York City trying to explain to Bernie supporters how much more similar Trump was to Bernie than Hillary. And, and she's saying, you know, that the hatred of Wall Street, the hatred of the endless wars, and the opposition to the uh, you know Koch brothers' low wage mass immigration policy is something that that they all shared as a as a positive um uh you know program on on both sides um you know it, it, do you see a, a, any sort of you know in, in, in trying to move forward right because i mean you kind of gave a and i totally understand a, a sort of hopeless um uh you know prospect of saying oh my god there, there's no way we we can move forward but but you you do have you know these these groups both on the right and left who are divided on many issues but on on these things they are 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 very very close um i don't know what what do you see in moving forward um you know politically uh these two groups ever coming together in in any way you know i as it's hard for me to see someone like Ann Coulter as a real, like a principled opponent of a new Cold War. She appears to have challenged Russiagate, and you know, however strong her analysis of it was, she appears to have challenged it purely for partisan reasons because it was Russia was weaponized against Donald Trump, and so you started to see a lot of um, you know right wing hawks who have supported George W. Bush's brutal imperial wars in the Middle East uh, start to sound like I understood anti-war voices to sound over Russia. But did they actually care about a new Cold War with Russia? Did they really want understanding for the good of humanity? Uh, maybe some of them did. Uh, did they really care about you know shredding of uh, – you know? intermediate range missile treaties. No, they wanted to protect Donald Trump and they knew that the whole narrative was completely phony um, and they're smart enough people to be able to pick it apart. But are they, I mean, where are they on China right now? We are being pushed into a new stage of the new cold war with China through the coronavirus pandemic and right-wingers are just falling into line because Donald Trump called it the China virus. So these aren't anti-war people. To be anti-war right now doesn't mean, and this is another point that I think applies to anyone, whether on the left or the right, it doesn't mean that you just oppose the uh, deployment of U.S. troops and U.S. heavy weapons 
and naval forces into a conventional war to uh, attack sovereign countries. It also means that you oppose the real future of US and Western warfare, which is hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare takes place through three modalities. Number one, uh, unconventional warfare, which is what I spend most of the management of savagery talking about, you know, funding the mm-hmm. contra, arming the Contras, arming the Mujahideen, arming the moderate rebels. Number two, uh, it takes place through economic warfare, sanctions. And sanctions are the most pernicious uh, application of imperial power in the world today. And they are literally killing people amid this pandemic. Uh, They're financial terrorism because they harm the weakest people in order to to turn them against their government. It never works. Then number three, information warfare. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whatever, you know, the various propaganda constructs that are used to uh, spread fear and hatred of other countries and other designated U.S. enemies. Um, we're constantly breaking them down at the website that I published, thegrayzone.com. Uh, we've been taking down all the different constructs on China where we just learned. We've been told all week that um, thousands of urns have showed up in Wuhan, uh, which prove that they've been hiding the death toll. And we show that that story was just completely baked. I mean, this is it's yeah. it's Iraqi WMD again and again. And that's what yes. information warfare is that along with cyber warfare. So we're in a war right now. And the principled anti-war people, whether they're right wing or left wing, will oppose all of it and put mm-hmm. the onus on their own government to stop placing, uh, put our tax money into um, this ca- catastrophic global confrontation. And I don't think the partisan Republicans who opposed Russiagate are going to come along with me there. I think they're just yeah. simply trying to protect Donald Trump and their own uh, interests as political hacks. Yeah, yeah. But there, yeah, there, there definitely is, is that, I can't remember the guy's name, Bill Mitchell or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Bill he, Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he's kind of like that, definitely. He's just like whatever Trump says. But, but, but there are people who, who definitely, um, I, I think, are principled in terms of being isolationist and non-interventionist in, in, in that respect, which, which I think lines up. You know a, a lot, but um, you know the the copy of of your book that I got from your publisher has an afterword. Is that only for is that for the um, paperback coming out, or is that also in the hardcover as well? Well, there may be an afterword in the paperback, but uh, the afterword is was something that I was able to. Uh, I was I was able to kind of slip it into the first edition right. because uh, there was such a lag between the um, editing and the publication period. So I got to put in a lot about Russiagate and also yeah. the kind of final phase of the Syrian proxy war. Um, yeah, exactly. That, that's what I wanted to ask you about because, um, uh, yeah, in that afterward – it you, yeah it's 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 kind of going to a new phase which you know I'm sure since that publication it's you know with the coronavirus and all this um, we uh, you know foreign policy is going to be definitely uh, transformed by this so how how do you see what's going on now you know with your afterward and and since the, the publication um, how how does this um, either build upon extend or or negate or or take over from the um 
from the narrative you were presenting from that uh, Middle Eastern Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, story? Great question. And, you know, I think that I've addressed it in, throughout this conversation. I've, I've, I've yeah. and, and I, you know, when I talk about the construction of a new cold war with China, I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. where everything is going in the U S uh, yeah. Our economy is going to be shifted to support it domestically. Uh, our media is falling into line to support it. It's uh, the desire for a confrontation with China and the fear of China and what it is and how it's misunderstood really unites the right and the left. And, yeah. uh, you know, Ann Coulter is right in many ways that there, uh, there are some similarities with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in that they have a kind of protectionist strain. And so that helps unite them on resentment of China. Um, I think there will be more unity on the confrontation with China than there was on one with Russia. And and the fact is that China does present the greatest single threat to U.S. global hegemony uh, since World War II. So, sorry, not since World War II, since the end of the cold, uh, the first Cold mm-hmm. War. So that's where things are going, and it's not going to be good for humanity. And in the context of my book, where I deal with this concept of unconventional warfare, proxy warfare, mm-hmm. um, I think that we've seen an attempt at a kind of proxy war on China in Xinjiang, which is this Western semi-autonomous province in China, which is home to the uh, Uyghur Muslim population. And in Xinjiang, there has been a kind of um, armed conflict, an armed struggle against the Chinese government waged by the um, East Turkestani Islamic movement. Um, they also have a wing which is present in Syria in the Idlib province called the Turkestani Islamic Party, who are officially aligned with Al-Qaeda. This is an extremist organization that's carry out, carried out several mass casualty attacks against civilians. And it's why Xinjiang today is really um, home to a really um, uh, all-encompassing surveillance apparatus um, the Chinese government put its foot down really strongly there. Xinjiang is of deep geopolitical importance to China, um, but you know if it can be pulled away or destabilized, that would be a boon um, to the West and to elements that would like to see the Chinese Communist Party destroyed uh, because of where it is. It's at the center of Eurasia. And if you, according to the theory put forward by Zbigniew Brzezinski That's right. in the global chessboard, which builds on British imperialists, um, mm-hmm. uh, Ma- game. yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the idea of, of Mackinder, um, mm-hmm. British general, it's if you control Eurasia, which he sees as the great world island, you control the world. Xinjiang is really at the center of it. It's at the center of so many pipelines. So I think we're going to see proxy warfare escalate on the frontiers of China. And we've heard so much in the information warfare sphere about millions of Uyghurs in Chinese concentration camps. Um, We've showed at the gray zone that it's just a completely fabricated story. I'm not denying that Uyghurs have been mistreated, but the notion of millions in concentration camps boils down to two completely bogus sources. I mean, no one ever checks the sourcing of it or bothers to interrogate it. And if you publicly try to interrogate these claims, you will be branded as a Holocaust denier. The problem is no one can dispute these facts, but Americans and particularly 
middle-class coastal liberals who make up the base of the Democratic Party are the real targets of this information warfare campaign. It's about human rights. It's about branding China as the new Nazi Germany, the world's worst human rights violator, and really uh, dragging people into a Manichaean black and white view of a country that is absolutely not a democracy, but which has its own system that many people have consented to and which has lifted 900 million people out of poverty. Uh, I think yeah. one third of the country's population, China, yeah. are members of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and we just are being dragged into the most simplistic understanding of a country where the US has really no good option of confronting. So that's where it's going, whether I don't know if Biden will be elected. It seems really kind of yeah. far flung to cart some a mentally frail person uh, yeah. from his Delaware home to the White House without actually having a campaign. Bernie Sanders. I, think I agree with the Cuomo conspiracy thing. The Cuomo <laughs> conspiracy. Andrew Cuomo. Let's say he yeah. gets in. Let's. I mean, I, let's. I mean, all the crazy conspiracies are are focused on the Cuomos. That Chris Cuomo is faking coronavirus to help his brother's political career because he <laughs> he looks fine when he's on TV. He's like, I had the worst nightmare last night, and my I broke my teeth, and like I had rigors, and I'm like, you look fine, man, but. Uh, and it's one of the greatest reality shows right now. Oh on yeah, TV, the Cuomo brothers on <laughs> on CNN. Yeah, and so okay, let's say he gets in. Well, let's say Bernie Sanders just somehow miraculously hangs around and manages to win, yeah. or Donald Trump wins again, which is kind of the most likely scenario, especially I think so. Especially now that he's given free Medicaid to uninsured people who get coronavirus. Yeah. Out- Take that, Bernie. <laughs> yeah, take. Well, it's more like take that, Obama and Hillary. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, no matter who gets in, we are going to see a hybrid war on China, a confrontation with China. China will retaliate. Uh, they're retaliating like we've never seen them before. We've seen the spokesman for their foreign ministry, um, uh, Zhao Linjiang, actually spread the theory publicly that coronavirus emanated from a U.S. bioweapons lab. You never mm-hmm. heard Chinese diplomats saying things like that in public in English with the approval of the foreign ministry. Yeah. So we're Different going, states. this is, this is, this is what we're going to be dealing with. And, you know, I'm someone who has done a lot of work and field work and spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I understand the Middle East much better than I understand East Asia, at least in terms of, you know, the various political forces at play. Um, I've done some reporting in Korea. I've never been to China. Um, but it, the sad thing is, I feel like I understand it better than the designated experts in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's, yeah, I've, you've, you talk about it here and I've heard you elaborate it. Um, elsewhere as well this kind of you know with the new cold war and this this, this kind of uh you know trope the, 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 this model of the li- liberalism these liberal democratic countries versus the authoritarian countries yeah. in this hard line you know, and and it's exactly like what you were you know, and, and the gray zone which which is the name of your organization um you know is it's it's sort of uh it it seems to me to be explicitly set up to be this kind of uh, place where you can have nuanced discussion. Is, is, is that kind of what 
the idea behind your gray zone is. Um, I and I, I'm pretty sure it comes from the um, the discourse of IS and stuff like that from from the documents, right? If if you could just sort of um, explain that, and I guess it's it's new relevance in the new Cold War. Absolutely, I mean that, and you you got it. Um, we were originally I launched it in. Um, 2016 and you know, as the Trump campaign was just kicking off and Islamophobic dis- by the way sorry yeah. to, sorry to interrupt yeah. as part of this information war when I was looking at your Wikipedia entry I saw somebody somebody must have inserted this they put months after his visit to Moscow he set up the gray oh zone <laughs> yeah, yeah so anyways yeah so you, you established it then <laughs> yeah yeah 30 well yeah just i want to respond to that i mean 37% <laughs> of my wikipedia page is uh been edited by someone named philip cross who spends all day and i don't even know if it's a person or a military operation making edit edits on anti war uh public figures wikipedia pages to defame them and right. there's this uh the the you know the forces that I described up front in this interview have tried to prevent my book from gaining a hearing or even from being published have spread this conspiracy theory that I went to Moscow to like get funding from the Kremlin and the FSB or whatever to start mm-hmm. the gray zone which would have meant that you know alternate was funded by Russia because uh it launched there uh, but it's yeah. you know absolutely ridiculous and false, and I don't even know how. I mean, it just shows how phony Wikipedia is at this point. It's just a bulletin board for the establishment to destroy That's right. uh, alternative voices. Uh, I, so anyway, yeah, I, I launched it then, and you know we were focusing a lot on, um, you know, Islamophobia on how, um, you know the. The, polit- the, the, the the horrors of the war on terror were coming back home. We were really focused on the war on terror at that point. And it wasn't until late 2016 when the U.S. was building towards another intervention over Aleppo in Syria um, that I really started challenging that side of the narrative. Um, and by 2017, we'd really found our voice still at alternate as uh, you know what we are today, kind of providing balance and nuance to an otherwise monotonous uh, under, uh, understanding of the designated enemies of the U.S. and regime change. Um, really, the only way to counter this information war is to provide balance and facts and field reporting that shows what's really going on in these countries or who the forces are that are trying to drag us into conflict. I think that's what we're best at is really um, uh, exposing these institutions, whether they're on the center left or the center right or far right. So the gray zone name came from a paper that was um, published by a proto-ISIS intellectual, someone who is really more affiliated with um, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, in 2003, he called for the extinction of the gray zone. And to him, he was writing under a pen name. The gray zone was the area in the West where sort of cooperation and, um, and, and, uh, intellectual and civil integration took place between Muslim immigrants and Western, you know, 
Anglo-Westerners. Mm-hmm. He wanted to destroy it, or he thought that the strategy should be to destroy that space by launching mass casualty, very spectacular terror attacks that would then promote it, it would it would it would seed Islamophobia, Islamophobic attitudes among Westerners, and they would then drive out the Muslims who would have to take sanctuary within an Islamic state. And then the Islamic State would be used uh, as a weapon against the post-colonial secular Arab states like Syria. Um, and they would you know, carry out attacks in Syrian cities and establish bases of operations, which is exactly what wound up taking place during the Syrian proxy war that began in 2011. So that was mm-hmm. our original name. And now you know, there's this concept in Washington of that is popular in all of the militaristic think tanks it's called gray zone warfare. Uh, one think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is just funded by the arms industry, they even opened a page called the Gray Zone Project. Um, I think they were trying to compromise our Google SEO because that's what we were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Because that's what we were originally known as. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and gray zone warfare is exactly what I've been talking about. Just another term for hybrid warfare. So mm-hmm. it, the name still fits. And then there's the gray zone where you're just not falling into a black and white understanding. Although we're constantly accused of that, we're one of the only you know, prominent alternative US sites and, or news outlets that is providing balance to the various propaganda constructs around China or Russia or whoever. Venezuela has been a big focus for us. And as we speak, um, you know, video is just... Um, circulated around social media showing U.S. troops uh, landing on the Colombian side of the Venezuelan border. Um, the U.S. has sent naval forces into Venezuelan waters, and it's a really tense time there. So, yeah, that's um, right by me where I am. <laughs> and, you know, we challenged the coup attempt from the beginning at the gray zone when a lot of people on the left were like, "Well, Maduro, he's evil." You know, let's. And they always kind of try to play both sides and wind up actually reinforcing the imperial narrative. We don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, uh, thanks for your time. I mean, we have taken up a lot of it, but what message would you, would you like to leave your readers with, after, you know, when they read your book and, and because you have a paper, the paperback uh, edition is coming out soon. So yeah. that'll be a new um, slew of readers coming through. Well, what, what would you say is the, the 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 substantive message that you know, um, if you were to just sum it up in a couple of sentences? Well, I think you know the blowback is only beginning. Um, we've yeah. been experiencing it for decades, and it will intensify. Um, I think anyone who sits down and reads the book and meditates on it will find serious lessons in the new phase of Cold War that we are now entering as the coronavirus sweeps across the country and China is blamed to deflect blame from our own president. Um, I think we should also reflect on how our foreign policy changes ourselves. I think that's one of the most important messages of the book, that it doesn't stay over there. Definitely, definitely. And, and, as I said, what I would, I would also say for for the listeners is that um, 
I mean, not only are, are you saying this theoretically, I mean, you, you go through the detailed history of the people, the institutions, the events. It's, it's, uh, it's really an amazing, amazing wealth of information uh, made into a sensible, coherent story. You know, I, I think it's, it's an excellent job you've done there. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me on. Are you working on anything right now? You did mention that 21st century Democrat um, kind of uh, tendency or think tank or whatever. Um, well, that's, why don't you tell us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an article I'm going to publish at the Gray Zone. I'm also working on a few pieces just because the coronavirus is hitting home about how uh, it's affecting people in prisons and city jails and how I think that the um, epidemic in the United States will actually be sort of sustained through the infection in prisons and how it'll spread to, it will particularly affect communities of color in American cities as the kind of uh, AIDS crisis did. So, uh, I mean, we have a really, just a horrible situation on our hands here and it's not being treated with the level of seriousness that it should be. So I, I'm starting to, I mean, I'm working on a series of pieces that just focus on my own community. Um, And I I did uh, film a documentary about Nicaragua and the regime change attempt that took place there in 2018. So I'm still working on that. I got a ton of time on my hands because I'm stuck at home. I had hoped to do a lot more field reporting this year. Um, I had hoped to visit places like China and Iran that are still being actively targeted by the U.S., but that's off the table for now, and we'll see where we are in the fall. Uh, all right, and that and they can check that out. it's thegrayzone dot com. Yep, thegrayzone dot com right. and uh, the Gray Zone News uh, on Twitter. Great, and, great. Uh, check us out on YouTube. Uh, we have a really active channel. Um, just search our name, The Gray Zone, on YouTube, and our channel will come up. We have two shows, Red Lines and Pushback, that have regular interviews, and we're providing a lot of coverage uh, from a, of the pandemic from an angle that you just simply won't hear anywhere in Western mainstream media. Well, thanks so much, Max, not only for this interview, but really for all the work you've done and continue to do often at great risk. Well, thanks a lot for giving me a hearing. Yeah, I encourage all our listeners to get a copy of The Management of Savagery. It's been a pleasure. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.